Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with my friend Tim O'Reilly from O'Reilly Media. He's the founder and president. He runs a series of conferences. He's been to INET conferences many times and stirred the drink of our awareness about the relationship between technology and society. Tim, thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be with you. So let's start with you run Friends of O'Reilly, Camp, Social Science Edition, just about a week or two ago. What in 2021 did pre- people bring to the table? Well, uh, first of all, our whole idea with FooCamp is to bring together people from different disciplines. Uh, so it was originally uh, just uh, people uh, from our technology community. Uh, O'Reilly is an online learning provider, a publisher, a conference producer, and it was sort of the mixing of the communities. And then we started doing one on the natural sciences with nature and Google. Uh, back, you know, this thing's been going on for 20 years. Uh, uh, four years ago, we started one on, on big data and the social sciences, and we thought, where better to do it than with Facebook? So it's actually sponsored by Sage, the social science publisher, O'Reilly, and Facebook. And we try to bring together, uh, normally, in normal times, a couple of hundred uh, uh, people for a face-to-face gathering at Facebook's campus. Uh, this was done uh, with a combination of Discord uh, and Zoom. And uh, so some of the, the, you know, the, the talks that I thought were, were, were really fascinating. First off, we, we, uh, we always have a set of what we call lightning talks, which are you know, short five-minute talks where people are, are, are advertising. And two of the highlights there, uh, we had uh, 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 the famous pickpocket. Uh, you know, uh, his name has just gone out of my head. I'm sorry, but he talking about you know kind of the neuroscience of pickpocketing, and it's it's a really <laughs> really interesting uh, perspective uh, because it does remind you uh, that we are not actually as aware of what drives us as we think we are. And I thought that was a, uh, was a real high point. Um, it always is. Uh, the thing, you know, when I think back on what were the sessions uh, that I attended that stood out for me, Paul Romer, who's gotten a, a real focus on um, how, you know, uh, in, in today's network world, you can actually have ideas that lead inevitably to monopoly. And, you know, is are we really um, in a phase change in our economy that we need to be taking much more seriously. Uh, Bill Janeway did a marvelous talk about uh, uh, lessons from the New Deal, uh, which are, I think are very relevant for climate change. Uh, Alison Gopnik and Margaret Levi did a, did a really interesting talk on the, the, the caregiver economy and, and how we need to think about that. that. That seems to me, and this kind of goes back to actually Mariana Mazzucato was there also talking about uh, her, her new book, The Mission Economy. But I, I think back on her previous book, The Value of Everything, 
And one of the big, big gaps in that book, I thought, was she didn't talk about the caregiving economy as one of these things that's still outside what she calls the value boundary. And I think we're in, and COVID has really brought that home, you know, in some sense that, that uh, you know, that we a- that actually these things that, that, that we tend to not value turn out to be quite valuable. And, and, and there's a real challenge to our economy. So we spent a lot of time talking about that. We had a great session with Nick Clegg uh, uh, about uh, just, you know, kind of frank conversation about Facebook. And, uh, uh, and I, I find Facebook endlessly fascinating um, because it's such a metaphor uh, for the things that we don't see about other aspects of our society. Every time people, you know, kind of point to Facebook and say, oh, how horrible. I, it makes me think of the uh, Gary Larson cartoon, uh, you know, that was on the cover of one of his books of the two bears, you know, in the crosshairs. And one of them was pointing to the other bear next to him, you know, <laughs> like him, get him instead of me. And I go, everybody's like, yeah, we, we, need, we need a scapegoat. And I go, no, no, you know, when you look at tech, it's, it's this incredible mirror look in the mirror. And, and, and that's really been, I guess, uh, one of the biggest ideas that I've been just wrestling with for the last four or five years. Uh, you know, and I talked about some in my book, but I've continued to, to think about it and look at it, uh, which is, you know, when we see these algorithmic systems and we question, are they giving us what we want? You know, we have to recognize that our, we've built an economy, which is an algorithmic system that is a natural creation of a set of rules that's very analogous to what Facebook built and that can go right in some ways and wrong in other ways that people can have really good ideas that that don't work out over time. Um, there's so much to drill down on there. So yeah, lots of side effects. By the way, just for our listeners, your book is called What's the Future? Big yellow cover WTF and uh, I remember you presenting that at the INET conference in Edinburgh, and people were really delighted. Many, many went home, read it, and sent me nice notes about it. And I hope, uh, I hope, how do I say, people will start with that and follow your work, uh, which is online. But but the book is really a nice basis for understanding where you do work. Yeah, and from that point on, I've also spent I've spent a lot of time uh, starting to uh, look at kind of the economics of these platforms and the economics of, of, of content on the web. Uh, and the whole idea of platform economics is, is a fascinating subject. It's, it's, it's very relevant to my own business because we run this online learning platform. And what we're trying to do is to balance the incentives uh, for content creators to create with the, the interests of consumers and you know we're very clear that we have to actually satisfy both sides of our market, uh, partly because we're not uh, a monopoly. You know uh, there are a lot of people providing this kind of content, and it really struck me that the reason why you know Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple are, are able to to act uh, you know to to say well all we care about is the consumer and to squeeze their suppliers so hard, that's a real measure of the fact that they are a monopoly. Because if you're not a monopoly, you have to care about your suppliers because they'll go somewhere else if you squeeze them too hard. And so I guess that sent me down a path of really trying to understand, 
you know, how do you build a balanced platform? We really try to do that. And it's actually funny because a lot of the, the, the most powerful innovations in our online learning platform came from us trying to find new ways to make money for our suppliers, not by trying to come up with new features for our users. And anyway, so I just started just uh, you know studying this whole field of platform economics, understanding you know there's so much that's powerful and right there. Uh, there's this great quote from uh, uh, Paul Cohen, who used to be the DARPA program manager for AI and other advanced technologies, now a professor of computer science at, at the University of Pittsburgh. But he uh, he said uh, we were at the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, and he said something that I immediately wrote down. And I've been quoting ever since. He said, the opportunity of AI is to help humans model and manage complex interacting systems. And there's a way that, you know, I look at these big platforms and, and, and actually, quite frankly, financial markets as well. And they're the farthest along at using these AI and algorithmic systems to manage economies. You can actually, in an odd way, uh, and I find this particularly fascinating with, with Google, uh, because uh, in its early years, and, and unfortunately, I don't think they've kept to this insight, in their early years, you know, first 15 years, say, they really had a very clear separation between the, the, the money market, which was their advertising, and the uh, natural organic search market. And, and, and it's so fascinating because we have this idea in, in economics, I think, that, uh, that in some ways, uh, you know, price signaling, money, is the coordinating function of the invisible hand. And what Google showed us in organic search was that you could actually build an incredibly powerful invisible hand, centrally managed, that did not use price at all as a factor. You know, uh, they have hundreds of factors, you know, modeling and manage a complex interacting system, looking at who links to what, uh, what do people click on, you know, hundreds of factors, and none of them was, was price. And so they proved to us that you can build, a, 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 you know, a global scale, you know, billions of users, marketplace of suppliers and consumers, a matching marketplace without money. And they had on the side the the um, you know the ads. Now, what's happened in the last ten years is that they actually have have taken out. They they've actually made search worse, i.e., adding money. They basically broken down the wall that they used to have between the two. And they 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 and it's actually a lot like in, in some way. Actually, uh, Dina Srinivasan. Uh, has a wonderful paper about Google ad markets. So they, you know, how they become, um, you know, they have kind of a monopoly on all, all the levels of, of, the, of the ad stack. Well, what I've been looking at is the other side, which is, and as a result, they've had to produce more inventory. You know, in the same way that during the housing crisis, um, um, uh, you know, they were producing more and more tranches of bad mortgages because they didn't have enough. Right for for the for the demand that they created, and, and in a similar way, Google has basically said, "Oh well, we're going to actually, you know, take, uh, you know, get rid of those pesky organic search results. We can make more ad space, and and, and you know, you'll you'll find many times, 
now there's a you know in, on a Google page for a, for a, a financially valuable search. It's kind of interesting because non-commercial search looks a lot like Google did, uh, you know, ten years ago. You know, you'll have ten links. You may have you'll have a few extra things. You know, here's a Wikipedia entry. You know, or, you know, but it, it's basically. You know, I, I always use my uh, being a literary uh, uh, person. I, I'll, I'll do a search for, say, Anthony Trollope, who nobody reads anymore. <laughs> you know, and you go, it looks like old Google, you know, but you look for anything that, you know, might be commercial, like a place to stay or a place to something to buy. And it's amazing how much is now Google content. You might get one organic result. And it's all ads and Google's own content. And Google's own content tends to be a roach motel. You know, it's like you click on the link and it looks like you're going to Yellowstone National Park, but no, you're going to another Google page about Yellowstone National Park, you know, where they've, they've taken more and more of the content of the web. And of course, this is the other side of what Dana's talked about. And, 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 and I guess I, I, you know, that leads me back to, well, what is the master algorithm? You know, because one of the things that's fascinating, despite what Paul said about modeling and managed complex interact, uh, uh, interacting systems, you know, algorithmic systems typically have a master objective function. You know, there's this thing, and actually it could be even for each sub-factor, because again, a lot of these things are additive, you know, you kind of are, are, are but you have an optimization function. It's actually often a lot, it's called a loss function. You're trying to minimize some value, but in, in other cases, it really is the maximization of something, even if, if the, the function itself is, is, is a loss function. And, uh, you know, the master algorithm of our society is grow your corporate profits. And, uh, you know, so at some point, this idea that Google had of, you know, don't be evil, you know, when Larry and Sergey wrote their original search paper and they said, you know, um, an advertising um, based search engine will always be biased against its users. You know, this this appendix called advertising and mixed motives. And they they really for the first 10 or 15 years, they figured out how to do that with pay per click advertising off to the side. But at some point, you know, the, this uh, and this again, this again, I'm rambling through my my half witted uh, uh, absorption of economics concepts here. I, I, I like going I, I become, on the sewer with you, so keep it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I become fascinated by the concept of rents. And uh, I started working with uh, Mariana Mazzucato and uh, Josh Ryan Collins at UCL on a project uh, uh, funded by Amidyar to actually go a little deeper on this work on, you know, tracking changes in Google and, you know, um, Amazon's uh, sort of content ecosystem and how that uh, is, is really a form of rent extraction. But in the course of that, I read Josh's little book uh, uh, called uh, "Why You Can't uh, Why You Can't Own Your Your, your uh, I think it's called "Why You Can't Own Your Own Home," uh, and, and it's basically a, a, about land rents. And and it, it it kind of helped me realize that there's two you know there's two kinds of rents because I was always when I you know my naive. Uh, idea of economic rents is the is the sort of the the guy controlling the bandits controlling the pass or the you know the feudal landlord who's like you know dude give me your grain or i'm gonna you know uh, <laughs> you know i'm not gonna protect you or i'm gonna I'm go you know or you know mafia or whatever the, that there's that kind of extractive rent but josh really talks about how that also goes there's a fundamental part of land rent which is the the rent that is caused by growth you know more people move into your town you know, there are improvements to your town that you didn't have anything to do with and you get this free lift. 
And what struck me is that in a lot of ways, what we're trying to measure is with these companies, you know, like if you look at an Amazon or Google, any really innovative company, they have that first type of free rent of the growth of the market, which carries them along up to a certain point. And then they, because the master algorithm says you have to keep growing, they go, what do we do? You know, the, the, so in some sense, actually, it's a new thing. I haven't actually, uh, you know, kind of done like when did the number of searches stop growing? You know, when did the, you know, and, and is that the point at which they started using the extractive form of rents to make up the difference? I'm going to recommend uh, there's an old economics book about uh, urbanization and rents for real estate by a man named Fred Hirsch. And uh, it, he talks all about what's called positional goods. And this analogy to the searches and the searches, the positional searches that extract yeah. money. Uh, no, it's, it's I'll, super I'll interesting. Yeah, and anyway, the point is I'm just trying to figure out what, uh, I mean, this is sort of part of a broader set of reflections that, I, that, I, that I'm, I'm trying to have on you know, what we can learn from Silicon Valley, you know, and in the early years when I was, you know, like, for example, when I started pushing the idea of government as a platform, I was like, well, we learned from the way that Amazon or Apple became a platform. You know, could we do something different in government from that? And those are very positive ideas. And I still think there's yeah, a lot. And your, of, wife, your wife, uh, Code for America, is an embodiment of that spirit. That, that's exactly right. And and she's gone on to do uh, uh uh, a lot more United States digital response. She set up the United States digital service at the White House. Uh, uh, yeah, we, we've really tried to push some of those ideas forward. But now I'm really uh, focused on, you know, what are some of the negative lessons? And and, um, and I do think that there's a really uh, important, you know, point for us to, you know, to face up to which is that we get the economy we ask for. You know, we didn't know that we were asking for it, but once we see it, we have an obligation to change it. And I, I, I think that the, um, you know, this sort of the notion that you can see so clearly in companies like Facebook and Google of, you know, they have an optimization function. You know, in the case of Google, in their in their best years, it was, and Larry actually said this in, in an interview that they actually attached to the IPO documents in 2004. It's a Playboy interview, actually. He, uh, he, he said, uh, 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 you know, he said, you know, our goal is to have users come to Google, find what they want and go away. You know, and if you, if you look at Google today, you would never think that that was the case, right? So they had this idea, this optimization idea that we will uh, give people what they want and go away. And in fact, one of their, uh, you know, factors, uh, you know, search factors that I love the most in some ways is called the long click. And a lot of people, uh, you know, people who are in the industry know about this, but others may not. You know, they, they realized that if, okay, when they were in the days of the 10 blue links, People would sometimes click on the first, people would typically start with the first link. And if they came right back and then clicked on the second link, then they came right back and they clicked on the third link and then they went away, they would be, oh, that's a statistical signal when enough people do it, that maybe the third link is the one that's actually the best link. 
despite all the other factors saying otherwise. They call, and they call that the long click, when somebody clicks and goes away. And so here was Google with this very clear, wonderful, uh, very effective, um, uh, you know, master objective, which is to make people, to have people find what they want and go away. And, uh, you know, in the case of Facebook, you know, they had uh, this idea that they would show people things that they would want to spend more time with their friends, you know, and again, seemed pretty wonderful. And and then, you know, we end up with, uh, you know, Myanmar genocide. We end up with, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, various electoral politics in the U.S. You know, it's a combination of bad actors and misaligned incentives. And, you know, and in each case, the companies are doing a lot to try to change. But I think they're doing a lot to try to change um, without threatening what's their real master objective, which is, you know, we have to keep growing. And, and I think in a similar way, if you look at our tax system and our politics, you know, there's this massive avoidance of the fundamental realization that we are in charge of the economy that we have. And we, so we do these little tweaks. We're gonna basically, we're gonna do everything we can to reduce inequality, except, except do the things that would really do it because there's too many people who have too much at stake. I was going to say, it's a very interesting question because when the scale of what you might call natural monopoly, like Paul Romer talks about, is so large, and yet we value individual freedom, we're defending the right of those technologists to operate on a very large scale without us intervening to change what they do for the collective good. Right. It's, it's really a tension between protection of individual liberty, whether it be commercial or social or what have you, on the one hand, and protection of other people from intrusion upon their lives by these products. And I, I have a good friend, uh, Rohinton Medora. He uh, runs the Center for International Governance Innovation in, uh, near Toronto in Waterloo, Canada. And he talks about why don't we have a food and drug administration where these things get a trial, then they are explored for their social ramifications, then they are evolved, then they are released. And uh, I, we, we're, we're not very good at incorporating the public dimensions of the innovation for the social good once it takes off on a path that's quite profitable. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. I, I, I do think, you know, being a, a Silicon Valley type, I, I don't actually like that approach because, you know, prior restraint of innovation is always a bad idea. I mean, or almost always a bad idea. Well, and, and competitors can engage in stopping you from developing something that would erode their profit margin, too. So there's lots of complexities in this. Yeah, I, the thing that I, I think what I would start with more than anything else is a modified set of disclosures. You know, like if you think about, say, uh, stock compensation, you know, for a long time, it was just sort of buried, you know, and then they basically said, no, no, you actually have to, uh, you know, have your, you know, gap and non-gap, uh, you know, measures of profitability. You can't hide this anymore. You know, they could have just said you can't hide it at all, you know, but instead of you can have two measures and let people uh, pick which one they're going to talk about. Uh, 
but they, 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 you know, they, they had disclosure. And I think, for example, in the case of, uh, you know, say Google and Amazon, I think, uh, you know, it just in general, I, I, you know, I love the phrase, uh, I'm not sure who said it originally, but I, Al Roth uses the title of his book, Who Gets What and Why? You know, like mm -hmm. if you basically mm -hmm. said, okay, we are going to work very hard to have a set of disclosures about who gets what and why. So this is really transparent, you know, and, and you know, like a real re revolution in the in in the kinds of documents. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, this is kind of going to a totally different area, but you know, the work that Saul Griffith and crew did uh, to, to map the energy economy with a Sankey diagram. What if you had a Sankey diagram of the money flows within Google and Amazon? You know, it would give you a whole other perspective on you know, what's broken and what's not and how it's changing over time, because right now we don't really know. You know, and I look at I look at, for example, you know, part of the, the work that I'm, I'm, I'm doing now is, is, is to say, try to figure out, well, if we look at how have Amazon's, you know, fees to their suppliers changed over time, how does the introduction of advertising, which is basically a fee on their suppliers, it's not, you know, it's like calling it advertising. You know, it's really a placement fee. You know, they call it an advertising business, but it's a placement fee. And again, it's just very much like what we're talking about with Google. In 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 the the glory days of Amazon, it was totally customer focused. You know, and Jeff said we want to be the most customer focused, you know, uh, company on earth. And it's hard to understand how that can still be the case when you do a search, and all that you get are uh, are promoted products. You know, do they are they saying, oh yeah, we're we're, we're you know, it may, and maybe if we dug in, we'd say they would say, oh yeah, well, we have a system for evaluating, you know, in which the, the ability to the willingness to pay is only one of many factors, and and we've tested and we made sure that it's 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 balanced out by the other factors, and I would believe that that's possible, but they should be, you know, they should be thinking about that. Is there a fundamental conflict between their advertising business and their idea of giving the best product to the, to customers? Yeah. When I've been looking uh, for used books recently, I get all kinds of sponsored products, and the thing I search for is usually about number nine on the list of what they show me. Yeah, it, 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 it's uh, it, it's pretty interesting these days. Uh, you know, you, just how little you see. You, you know, when I when I first started talking about Web 2.0 and collective intelligence back in 2004, 2005, I used to use Amazon as an example, just like Google because they did use collective intelligence, you know, and I used to show here's here's a search on barnesandnoble.com. Amazon was just a bookstore back then. Here's a, 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 a search on amazon.com and you can see Barnes and Noble is pushing the, their promoted product or the or a product that they have you know, created themselves, you know, and, and here over on Amazon, it's, it's you know, the, the, the default search was uh, you know, what they used to call all the flow around the product it was the number of reviews, the, ra the review ratings, how many people had it, you know, links to it, you know, all the same kind of things that Google did. And now today it looks it's kind of like they, they've got the Barnes and Noble uh, system, which is, is Amazon's products and, and the things that people are, are willing to pay them to promote. Now, I think that the thing that probably Amazon does differently is that they basically say, uh, and I'm just guessing, is that they don't actually, um, you know, it, it's just a tax. It's just a rent. 
you know, they extract. They're going to go, you're going to show up in, 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 in uh, first in search, you know, using all these other factors, but you're not going to unless you're also a member of our, you know, we will charge you for that for it. You know, and, and that's a, that's sort of a clever hack. And it's a classic kind of, you know, uh, um, you know, bandits and, you know, positional <laughs> uh, advantage, you know, um, uh, type of rents. Well, let's uh, I'm, I'm interested in things like this film that came out uh, about, I guess, several months ago, The Social Dilemma. And they talked about how they can watch the things you like, the things you click on, and then send you a subset of the stimulants to excite you, to affirm you, to keep you on longer. And that the side effect, or I guess the intent of that, is once they've shown advertisers that they get this long attention and recurring returns and everything, they can then raise their advertising rate. Yeah. yeah uh, I, again, I, I think that we need a lot more study of this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Tim Huang's book, The Subprime Attention Crisis, uh, where he, he makes the point that actually some of this hyper-targeted advertising is not actually as effective as promised. And uh, that in some sense, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, subprime crisis, you know, where you're basically... Uh, making a, a kind of a bogus product that uh, doesn't actually hold up to scrutiny, and eventually the, the bubble the bubble will pop. Will pop. Now, I don't know if he's right about that, but um, in any event, the thing that I find super interesting, again coming back to my my thoughts about the master algorithm, I, I found it fascinating that in 2014, Facebook got taken out to the woodshed for the study where they were you know, researching whether they could make people happier or, set, or or whatever by what they showed them in their newsfeed. And that was considered a breach of research ethics. But studying whether you can get them to spend more time on your site so that you can make more money, you know, which is the research they do every day, that's not even considered research. That's just doing business. <laughs> that's marketing. You know, so yeah. How can it be a breach of research ethics to experiment whether you're influencing people's moods when your business is influencing people's moods? And it's okay <laughs> as long as it's for profit. That says that's our society in a nutshell. And I think that our, you know, our media that descended on you know, Facebook like you know, wolves on a, you know, a crippled deer are, you know, it's just like, yeah, we have a lot to answer for there because they should have been doing more of that kind of experimentation because if they, that had become, you know, like a legitimate subject of discussion, wow, we really are influencing how people feel. What do we as a society want to do about that? That would have been a really damn good question. And, and instead, we, we made them stop. Yeah, they might have discovered that they were doing things that were harmful to mental health and then probably had the American Psychiatric Association take out an ad so that they wouldn't publish that so that they would generate more business. I mean, all these interactions just, I'm, I'm no, goofing, uh, but, but this is a lot of, this is a lot of complex stuff that really uh, uh, does it, matter to it, life it on does. Earth now. Yeah, it is. It reminds me, of course, of the, the wonderful uh, book, uh, Fishing for Fools uh, by George Ekeloff and Bob Schiller. Uh, which, uh, you know, for, you know, th 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 this is an efficient market for 
uh, for everything, including fraud. You know, there's an efficient market for you know manipulation. You know, that so much of what we take for granted as the way our economy works is that efficient market for you know manipulation, not for people's benefit. You know? That's right. Well, at one level, the naive economic theory assumes that one's so-called preferences that are the basis of the utility function are icy, frozen, and independent. Yeah. They're not malleable. They're not uh, influenceable. They're yours, and then yeah. your demand is yours. It's not the product of a social interaction or that's inspiration right. or, or manipulation. And yeah, that changes the uh, normative implications of economics quite powerfully. I used to laugh because I used to live in Murray Hill in Manhattan, and I'd walk down Madison Avenue past all of the uh, various advertising agencies. And I used to laugh and say, huh, you guys don't exist. Economics said, you don't exist. So I don't have to look in these store windows. I don't know how much you're doing. But then you go look at a business school curriculum and what, what do you have? A third of the time or more is spent on teaching marketing. Marketing, accounting, finance, but marketing plays a big role. So the, the psychology, the subjective psychology and the, the fluidness of the psychology are really elements that are in play in the kind of contexts and technologies that you study. Yeah, there's so much to think about, and uh, I do think that the idea of um, you know economics, uh, you know that that sort of you know well in this idealized situation this would be true, you know and let's leave out all the factors, is no longer necessary because we actually have you know and again this comes back to this theme we have the technology to start to tease apart many more of the factors and to run experiments at global scale. And so I think we're in a, we're in a, in a lot of ways, a beautiful time for economics where uh, we can actually observe many things that we, you know, before you just were doing these equations and, uh, you know, and, and kind of you had to go do this radical simplification and now you're literally in a world where you can, you know, build a machine learning system that will take, you know, uh, you know, thousands or even millions of factors into account. And I, I love, there's a great description by Jan LeCun of what, what an actual, you know, deep learning model is. He says, it's just like, think of, a, of like uh, a machine with a, a thousand little slider or, or a million little slider switches that you can push up and down, uh, you know, until you get, to the right answer, you know, that's kind of what it is, you know, it's like, okay, let's wait, you know, there's all these functions that are being calculated. When you when you change this, does it does it get you uh, more correct results? You know, if you change this, does it get you more correct results? And, and you know, we can because we can do in, a, in, in, our, in today's machines, millions of these kinds of little, you know, experiments, uh, to, to, until we actually, you know, fit the curve. Uh, you know, you can actually get a lot out of that, that we, uh, I think it's a very different approach. Now, of course, it still doesn't account for, uh, you know, it's usually within a particular constrained problem set, but it's, uh, we have a totally interesting new tool set. Yeah, I, I want to uh, draw an analogy to the history of economic thought, because the original ideal of the market 
and yeah. that it pulled everything together and created the balance and the price was a reflection of desire and cost, etc., was then a little bit superseded by people like Friedrich von Hayek, who said, no, what, what the market is, is the information aggregator. And through the prices, you get the signals for social response to do the right thing. Well, what you're telling me, I believe, is that now the technology is such that at essentially zero marginal costs, the information aggregator is pulling it all together. And you can see the outcomes without all of the iterative process and that that almost like it's almost like a planning market to use yeah. the old communists can be run at the central office because the computer can reach so many places so inexpensively you know it's, it's interesting uh uh, I've actually thought a little bit about that. There's, there's actually a novel called Red Plenty about the, um, you know, the Soviet central planners. And there was a fabulous uh, essay about, about that, a, a book review by a computer scientist about why even today it's still very, very hard. Uh, but when I read it, I thought, oh, I think we thinking wrong about we're thinking wrong about that. And the way we're thinking wrong about it is, yes, these companies are central planners. But in the old model of central planning, you were planning supply. And today's central planners are planning demand. Right. So they're manipulating demand and then letting the supply rise to meet it. As opposed to in the Soviet model or whatever, it was, you know, plan supply and you were always wrong. But they don't plan supply. They just plan demand. And, and they, they shaped and in the they Soviet model. Demand. They told they told you what you needed in the Soviet model and provided the supply. Whereas they they determine your preferences of what you would get, what you would eat, etc. Now they're detecting what people want, influencing what people want, and then the suppliers can react to that information. That's right. And it's the combination of detection and, and influence that we, again, we need to understand. So anyway, all this again comes back to this idea that if I had a magic wand, you know, about how to deal with the antitrust problem, it would actually not be first to say, oh, we'll break this up, we'll do that. It would be to, to, to vastly amount, increase the amount of disclosure. Uh, because I don't think we understand these systems enough yet. And, 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 you know, and you said earlier that you're able to do this at zero marginal costs. And I don't think that's actually correct. The cost is quite high. You know, if it were zero, mar I mean, it's, it, you know, um, uh, you know, it, it's high enough that you have only a, a, a relatively small number of players who are able to do it. And, um, uh, and yes, you know, certainly it, it's got a low marginal cost relative because once you built the infrastructure, you can do it for things that for, for so many things that you would never have measured before, would never have influenced before, would never. But 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 the uh, you know, it, it's not quite. Yeah, once you once you play at scale, your fixed costs are prorated over large volume. Oh, ab absolutely. But there's there's something that's a little wrong to me. And again, I am totally naive. I, I feel like I'm I'm totally, you know, like. You know, I, I learned no economics before the last five or six years, and I'm just kind of, you know, kind of 
uh, floundering around it. But it does seem to me that the idea from manufacturing of, mar of marginal costs going down is not the same in the digital realm. You know, and when we say this zero marginal cost, uh, you know, a, a lot of it has to do with, it, it, I remember back in the early days of Google when I was first formulating, this is, would, be, would have been in the, the you know, the you know, early part of, uh, uh, of this century, you know, uh, it was maybe even before Google had gone public. And I was thinking about what was different about these online platforms from, you know, the previous generation of software, you know, like Microsoft would have the gold master of Windows and it would come out every two years or whatever. And Google, you know, and, and I was sort of working on this idea that software is becoming a process, you know, something that you do every day. And I, I, I made that comment, you know, I, I, uh, to, to somebody who was a senior executive at Google. I said, you know, if, if you guys didn't keep working on Google, uh, it, would, uh, it would stop working within a couple of days. She says, oh, no, no, you're wrong. It would be a couple of minutes. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and so there's that whole point that, that, you know, like that idea of marginal cost is sort of goes like you make it and you're done. And the point is, if Google or Amazon or whatever didn't keep doing what they're doing, you know, there, there is an incremental cost for which which is ongoing. You know, it's not like you have a fixed cost that you're once done with. And, and in fact, because the world is changing so fast, you have to actually keep doing more and more. And you, know, you look at that with, say, Facebook, you know, it's like billions of people are pushing and pulling. And, and there's actually quite a, a high um, ongoing cost, which is uh, driven by the changes that are extrinsic to the system. You know, unlike, as I say, the, 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 you know, the, the decreasing marginal costs of a manufacturing business. And I, again, I don't think I haven't thought about that much before, but I'm quite convinced that somebody needs to, 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 to basically write an economics paper about why the economics of these businesses doesn't fit the old model. Yeah, there may be marginal costs that are incremental and increasing returns because the fixed cost of the platform is prorated over larger and larger volume. And I may have confused the two notions when we talk. Let me ask yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm really interested in you're exploring these technologies and their social ramifications and their business models. But there's one other overlay here. We live in a world now which where different regions have very different philosophical systems. The Chinese Confucian Taoist world is very different than the Cartesian Enlightenment world. We see the difference between the United States on the one hand with lots of suppliers, Europe using these services, but not having as many of the big monopolies that originate there. Asia with a centralized government structure people fearing the centralized control. How do we build a global system where these kinds of platforms interface across nations and across philosophical boundaries? That's a really, really interesting question. And I, I guess I would say that uh, that is one of the challenges that we get to face in the 21st century. <laughs> and I would, would uh, say that uh, you know, that in fact is going to be a lot of the history of the 21st century. 
uh, people are going to be pushing for advantage and trying to push their system over another. And I, I guess, is that really that different from history in the past? Probably not. You know, in the sense that no, it's you know, different you manifestation about, with this technology system. No, of course, it would be it is, different but, kinds of challenges in the micro sense, but the struggle is ever. No, present. but, but if, yeah. if you think about colonialism, for example, this was you know somebody had a a better um, you know uh, now when I say better, it's in quotes because it wasn't necessarily you know uh, a more better in, <laughs> it was, but it was it was yeah. more powerful. They had a more powerful methodology, and we may well see, for example, that. Let's just say, let's imagine that China has a more powerful methodology and they will outperform and, and uh, you know, and, and the rest of the world will be forced to adapt. Hey, that's what happened with American capitalism. And so, I, you know, so I guess I would say that figuring this out really matters, but it isn't necessarily going to be, oh, we're going to figure out how to interoperate and everybody will. Uh, play by the same rules. It may be that somebody wins and we all have to play by their rules. Now, of course, it's, it's it, you know, like, you know, just obviously the whole discussion about, uh, you know, does do we get, uh, you know, a, 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 digital a digital central bank currency that becomes a reserve currency, whoever controls that. Now, of course, there's been a great debate going on around, um, you know, this, this question of, um, you know, to China's, you know, ideas about using a digital currency as a tool of social control and social tracking internally run against their goal of having, you know, a digital currency that becomes a world reserve currency. Those two things fight with each other because other people are, you know, other countries, you know, so that you look at, at things like that, we're going to have a lot of, 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 of different factors that, that influence, um, uh, the future. And I, I, I guess I would also say that I, I think that we're entering a really interesting world where the kind of challenges that we face uh, are, are, you know, our old solution becomes a new problem. And, you know, again, I talked a little bit about this in my book. I was influenced by Mark Blythe, uh, some things I read of his. Uh, you know, in my you know uh, account of in, in my book about um, you know how what we dealt with uh, a after um, World War Two, you know, which was you know you know you look at okay after World War One, you know they were continuing to optimize for you know you know for 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 capital and so on and uh, the 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 winners bankrupted the losers they had this terrible. You know, outcome, the Great Depression, uh, you know, de you know, hyperinflation in Germany leading to World War II. After World War II, they're like, dude, we're not doing that again. Right. And you have the Marshall Plan. You have all the social insurance in the U.S. You have all those things that we did where we were optimizing for full employment. And, and then you get to, um, you know, the, the 70s and it's worked out to, you know, cost pu uh, push inflation and and, and you know, and, and oh my God, we got to change, you know. And of course, uh, Blythe talks about Goodhart's law, you know, which is once you start optimizing for something, it stops working. And I think you know that what we, we got to with our current version of shareholder capitalism has had also had a forty-year run. You know, it was like we did; we tamed inflation. Uh, it looked like it was working, and now it's not working. Hey, guess Good Goodhart's law again, you know. And so the question is, what's going to replace our you know, consumerism, capital focused, capital appreciation focused system 
and you're already seeing all these you know things around the edges and this is why when i talk about the next economy which is you know kind of this overall you know i i'm putting together this giant basket of factors you know like on the one hand it's like the caring economy you know we're starting to to include that in the value boundary when you know rich companies are saying well we're going to give you three months no we're going to give you six months parental leave and it's going to be for both parents you know that's that's basically valuing the caring economy you know uh, when we're starting to go oh my god you know pandemic unemployment insurance that's the caring economy you know um you know built built you know and the question is well will it just be you know well it's government's job to build the social safety net or is it company's job is it you know, or do we start saying, oh, we just have to optimize differently? You know, I mean, all these discussions, you know, um, you know, universal basic income. I, I love Kaifu Lee's idea of no, so we should we should tackle the caring economy thing with a social investment stipend, you know, where we pay people to you know, raise their kids. We pay people to uh, look after their elders. We pay people to work in their communities, you know, like we have all these fresh opportunities to think about you know, do we still want to do the same, you know, kind of economy? Or is it time for one of these generational shifts? And I think I, in the back of my mind, I always have climate change as a gi giant right. driver of this. You know, like when you have hundreds of millions of climate refugees and all those pressures, are we going to learn a lesson? Are we going to go, how do we turn this into an opportunity? You know, so when I think of great challenges of the 21st century, one of the ones I like to say is, how do, how do we turn refugees into settlers? You know, you like, yeah. you know, say we're yeah. treating them as a temporary problem. No, they're not going to be a temporary problem. We have to figure out, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, I've often thought, you know, that this, uh, you know, there are lessons from history. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, unfortunately, they're bad lessons uh, in some ways, you know, like you think about Israel and, uh, you know, if they it, but but, you know, the, the good side is all these people were not refugees, they were settlers. The bad side is they dispossessed the people who were there, you know, before. But like, if you could you imagine a 21st century regime that said, dudes, you know, let's buy a lot, you know, there's all, you know, like you look at the great depopulation of vast parts of the United States and you say, you know, what if we said, no, let's actually have, let's build new settlements there. Let's figure out how we would do that, uh, you know, um, there's so, there's so many interesting challenges and how, you know, do we understand, you know, same thing, smart cities. I go, do we really need to build a smart city for tech people, on, you know, on the outskirts of Toronto? No, Google, figure out how to make, you know, a, a, a refugee camp that's the new Hong Kong or the new Singapore, you know, <laughs> that would be a freaking challenge. One of the things that is in the forefront of my mind right now is the challenges the disruptions in the continent of africa yeah at absolutely. the one level there are things like jack ma and the luhan academy are working on in relation to creating new networks with the kind of technology you study to facilitate development because what i will call the east asian model manufacturing infant industry protection are being obliterated by global supply chains, machine learning and automation. Secondly, it's an equatorial region and climate change will affect subsistence farming and undermine social stability in an underdeveloped region. Finally, you've got, according to the International Office of Migration, by the year 2070, 
absent a major war, the population of the continent of Africa will be 5.1 billion people. And so there's all kinds of, of, of the things that you just took me through. There are all kinds of dimensions. Technology playing a positive role. Technology meaning past isn't prologue. Climate change intrusion. Massive potential migration. It's a fascinating laboratory for the kind of works that, that you explore. It, it is. And I have to say, you know, it's not going to be pretty. And that's kind of comes back. You mentioned uh, in the beginning, we talked a little bit about social science food camp. And I didn't mention one of my uh, favorite sessions uh, is uh, from uh, Ada Palmer, uh, who is a science fiction writer. And she's also a Renaissance historian. And actually, actually, or I should say she's a Renaissance historian who's also a science fiction writer. The two uh, spring from the same uh, deep sense, and, and she has a, a blog called Ex Urbe, uh, which, you know, from the city in Latin, um, in which she writes these popular essays about how history happens. And they're fascinating because one of her, uh, you know, themes is that we tend to always interpret history uh, through our own lens. And you know, she 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 uh, she says you know people like to say history is written by the victors. That's wrong. Uh, among historians, what we say is history is written by the people who write history, and they have their own motivations. <laughs> and she she gives the example of of uh, one of her um, uh, uh, you know uh, peers as a grad student uh, written a thesis about. Um, uh, a period in Mexico when the Spanish, uh, uh, or maybe it was other part, Mexico and other parts of Central America, where there was a whole movement where the, the, uh, uh, the you know, the, Sp the educated Spanish were rewriting Roman history to justify, you know, the way they were treating the, the uh, you know, the, the Native Americans, you know, and, and, and you go, nothing, you know, you, and so you could see it there. You know, but could we see, well, well, don't you think Gibbon was doing the same thing? You know, <laughs> you know, uh, you know justifying the British Empire. And, and anyway, she goes back uh, through many, many different examples. And actually, it's kind of funny because I'm just uh, reading. Um, uh, and it, this is not history, but it's making very much the same point. Uh, Emily Wilson's uh, translation from a couple of years ago of the Odyssey. And she just talks about the fashions in translation and the values that are expressed. You know, and it's like, and, and both Ada and, and, and Emily make this same point, which was the people in the past were not like us. And, you know, so, you know, one of Ada, she has a, a great series of essays on, you know, our, our myth of the Renaissance, you know, and like, you know, all these people who were proto-moderns, you know, it's like they were atheists. She's like, no, nobody got burned at the stake for being an atheist. They were burned at the stake for believing some crap that we we would not be able to believe that Giordano Bruno would, would be so stupid as to think that, you know, you know, uh, you know, you know, it's, it's just like just when you really go back, she says, look, I looked at all the people who burned at the stake, you know, and this whole she kind of goes off on this uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson thing about Giordano Bruno being burned at the stake for, you know, espousing Lucretius. And he's like, no, nobody got burned at the stake for they thought Lucretius was so ridiculous because nobody could believe in atheism. It was a great foil. You know, they got they. <laughs> They, they got uh, burned because they believed some variant of, of you know, 
crazy things that now we go, why would you kill somebody over that? (laughs) And I guess the reason I I say this, uh, you know, the same thing with with Emily Wilson's Odyssey, you know, just like, you know, here's Pope turning, you know, uh, this interpretation of, 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 of Odysseus and, you know, uh, uh, so on. But I, I guess I, I think that that we have to have kind of a humility as we think about the 21st century. And we and it's not going to look like us. And we have to look back and go, oh, yeah, the, the way we are today is not how we were 50 years ago. I mean, there, there is a continuity, but there's also massive discontinuity. And, you know, so, for, for example, you know, that post-World War II economy that I was talking about earlier was a different economy where we valued labor, you know, and, and the idea that somehow the market doesn't value labor anymore. No, no, no. We told the market not to value labor anymore. I know there's a conversation I had with Brad DeLong once where he said, look, I have a toy model. I haven't really developed it a toy model where you can actually get the same output with, um, you know, uh, more technology and less labor or, uh, you know, um, less technology and more labor, you know, but you can get the equivalent results. You know, so we made a choice, you know, and we made that choice uh, because it was the advantage of to some people. And this idea keeps cropping up. I'm thinking about Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And, and he comes to this wonderful conclusion, which is very similar. He says, you know, everybody has this idea that being an anti-racist is, is uh, having certain values and feelings and, and, and eradicating, you know, values and feelings. He says, no, racism is not a set of, of, of feelings. Racism is a set of policies which are put in place by people in power and that are sold by influencing and creating those feelings, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that that is a really powerful notion. And, you know, the idea that our economy is shaped by the idea of people who are shaping, you know, what we believe for their advantage. And that we can sh- and we can shape it differently. The great black writer James Baldwin. Oh, God, Baldwin's right brilliant. into this. Yeah. He really saw into yeah. these areas. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he did. There's a modern poet who I often quote who goes by the name In Q, which is short for In Question. And he's got a poem called Evidence. Which I was listening to you talk about these different aspects of history and how they're projected onto understanding now that comes from now. His poem says, you can always find evidence to support what you choose to believe. Yeah, and absolutely. And he repeats that two or three times. And it's, uh, it's, nice. it's yeah. this, this veil of science as though these things are there teaching us about the future. Yeah. Belittles uh, the notion of our feelings and interactions from the present, which influence our lens in looking back at that past evidence and what we draw from that. It's yeah, so we have this fabulous opportunity to make it new. Yeah. Well, I always laugh when people talk to me about climate change, because at the time of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, there was a man named the Earl of Lauderdale. And he said, what are you talking about? That 
price is equal to value. He said, if anybody shut off the water or the oxygen, you would die. It obviously has great value. But at that time, the size of mankind in relation to the planetary resources was small enough that you could have a price of zero because people had plentiful water and plentiful oxygen. But we may be learning a different lesson in the current context. And that how, how price didn't reflect value was what the Earl of Lauderdale said. And the question is, why do we presume it does now? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great place to end, I think. I think uh, you've taken us on a wonderful tour today. I want to thank you. I'm not surprised because I've been following you and learning from your work and your explorations. I, I love how refreshing your mind is. I love in this dire time how much enthusiasm and curiosity you project. My young scholars can learn a lot from your way of being. So well, thank you. thanks for joining me and uh, hopefully we can turn around the corner a little bit and uh, maybe come back in a few months and take another, take another look. That sounds great. Well, I, I love, I've learned so much from you. So thank you. Well, it's the feelings are mutual. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing